Well, we are journeying through Passion Week during the, the month of March here on Sunday mornings. And Passion Week, also known as Holy Week, uh, is a term that is used to describe the events of the final week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion and triumphal resurrection. So that's where we're headed. We are anticipating the event of Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, March 31st this year, two weeks from this morning. But before we jump there, I want you to travel back with me to that final week of Jesus' life. Imagine yourself there in Jerusalem witnessing the events that are taking place that are recorded in the New Testament Gospels. Now Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, has been faithful. He's been obedient to his Father's plan, his Father's will for his life. And he's not about to stop. He knows why he's come to earth. Very specifically, very clearly, for one purpose to offer himself as a sacrifice, defeating sin and death, so that the people of God, by faith in God, could experience salvation in Jesus Christ. So, this is where we find ourselves. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. Now, you may have noticed before that as you've read the New Testament, as you've read these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them devotes a disproportionate amount of space to the final week of Jesus' life. And Jesus has been confronting the Jewish religious leaders over and over and over again for their lack of real faith, their lack of genuine faith in God. And as I read this passage that we're going to look at for this morning and some of these other passages that uh, are included in this long string of very direct and confrontational teachings aimed at the self-righteous religiosity of the Pharisees, I could not help but notice that Jesus seemed to operate a little bit differently during Holy Week compared to the rest of his ministry on earth. Now, there were certainly other examples in the New Testament, other examples in the gospel, the events of Jesus' life and his ministry where he confronted these Jewish religious leaders, people such as the Pharisees and the scribes and the experts in the law, the elders the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the council. Time and time again, Jesus found himself stepping on their toes. But then what did he often do? He would often withdraw. And scripture tells us very plainly, it was because his time had not yet come. Remember those words? Well, now his time has come. And he's not backing down. He's on a mission a mission to be obedient. And as I read this section of Scripture, uh, not just the parable that we're going to look at briefly this morning, but this, this long section of several chapters within Matthew and, and the other New Testament Gospels as well, I could not help but to think and to believe 
that these events happen just as God intended. And that these events are recorded in just the way and in just the order that God intended in his word. Because he knew the outcome that would take place as a result of this friction, this tension that Jesus had with the religious leaders. And I want us to see this morning, and I think we will see this morning from Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32, that Jesus demands belief and repentance. Jesus demands belief and repentance. Now, I know that sounds like a very straightforward, simple, comfortable gospel presentation, but it's not. And the reason it isn't is because our passage for this morning, especially in the context of Jesus' ministry, does not allow for that. So I say that to say, just because you can probably remember a time and or a place where you checked a box saying you made a decision to believe in Jesus, that's not an excuse to tune out from what God might have to speak to us through his word this morning. One of the most well-respected and humble New Testament evangelical scholars today has written these words. He's written eschatological judgment. That simply means end times judgment. Eschatological judgment awaits those whose only evidence of faith in Christ is the confession of Jesus as Lord. Let me say that again. Eschatological judgment awaits those whose only evidence of faith in Christ is the confession of Jesus as Lord. And those words coupled with this passage, as well as many others in the New Testament, as well as the songs that we've sung this morning about a living faith, an active faith, the passage that we looked at out of James chapter 2, all of these things in combination should cause all of us, no matter where uh, we've been on our life journey, our spiritual journey, to stop and to examine our own spiritual condition before God. And so that's what God's Word will invite us, I hope, to do this morning. So let's journey back to Jerusalem on Tuesday, the day before Jesus was crucified. Matthew chapter 1, excuse me, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. We're going to divide this short passage of Scripture up into two sections. First, looking at the story, the parable, the hypothetical scenario that Jesus told, and then looking at the meaning of that parable. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. Now remember that Jesus' authority has just been challenged. Last week we looked at the passage of Scripture where Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he cleared the temple, a passage that most of us are familiar with. Jesus coming in and, and overturning the tables because all these people had allowed the house of God to become a marketplace, a place to take advantage of others. But now, the religious leaders, the Jews who had been entrusted with the word of God, who had been entrusted with the spiritual oversight of the nation of Israel, 
we're naturally questioning where Jesus, where, where is this guy getting authority to come in and do something like this, to disrupt what we're doing, what we've been charged to do? And this is his response, or part of his response to that challenge. And so he invites these religious leaders in, and he begins in verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. So this is the situation. During Jesus' day, there were all sorts of different types of religious leaders. I've mentioned some of those already. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the experts in the law, the scribes. And these different religious leaders often disagreed over certain theological or practical issues. And perhaps we could make the comparison today to uh, denominational leaders from varying denominations uh, disagreeing over various interpretations of Scripture, emphasizing certain things over against other things. But one thing that these Jewish religious leaders all agreed upon in that day was their opposition to Jesus Christ. They didn't like him. He challenged the status quo. He made them uncomfortable, calling them hypocrites time and time again. And so he tells this story, inviting them in to listen to this story. And he tells the story of a father who had two sons. And he told the first, hey, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son said, I will not. Straight up, I'm not going to do it, Dad. But then he changed his mind and he went. The second son, he told the same thing. And the second son said, I will go, but he did not go. Now, as I thought about these two responses, these two uh, responses from these sons to their father that uh, are recorded in this parable here in Matthew chapter 21, I could not help but to think of two scenarios that probably most, if not all of us, are familiar with. And the first, I'm going to call the toddler syndrome, the toddler syndrome. And this one is especially near to me right now because Kinsley, my daughter, turned two last weekend. And so she fits in this category. And I've seen this practice several times. And I'm sure we will continue to see it over the coming weeks and months. But this is what I mean by the toddler syndrome. Toddlers, two and three-year-olds, often throw these fits when they don't get their way. You know what I'm talking about? Is this just me or have you seen this, whether or not you're a a parent, an aunt and uncle, you've, you've been around toddlers at some point in your life. You've witnessed this. And so what I mean by this syndrome is the reactionary fit that quickly erupts when uh, a young child does not get his or her way. And in the immediate moments that follow that initial fit, nothing else will satisfy that child. It might be that She has been denied a a toy car. And you could immediately offer her chocolate ice cream. And it's not good enough. And the fit just gets worse. But once you actually take into account that she's denied the the, the chocolate ice cream, and, and you take her at her word, and you take it away, 
then things just continue to spiral downhill from there because she was not really saying no to the chocolate ice cream. She was saying no to me. She wanted to spite me. She was not saying what she meant. And this is sort of like what we see right here in this parable with this first son. He says, I'm not going to do this, Father. And then he ends up doing it. He changes his mind. And the word here for change his mind is the word for repent. And it can mean remorse or regret. And it can also literally mean to change your mind, to change your actions, as it's portrayed here in the NIV. But either way, in this case, it led to a changed behavior. He repented, changing his mind, and ended up actually doing what his father requested in the first place. Now, the second son in this scenario reminds me of another syndrome or another practice that you're probably familiar with as well. And I'm going to call it the car salesman syndrome. The car salesman syndrome. And what I mean by that, you could probably guess this, is that a car salesman typically tells you what you want to hear, right? Tells you what you want to hear. And this is what the second son did. He was asked the same thing by his father. Go and work in the vineyard today. And immediately he says, I will, sir. But then he didn't do it. Now, I can well remember the last time that my wife Ashley and I bought a car. And we were on the car lot. And we, like most car buyers, were probably not really intending on buying a car that day. Uh, But the salesman uh, was uh, pretty good with his words. You know, he convinced us. And so he came up to us and he said something like this. And we had already decided on the type of car that we wanted. We were really just kind of shopping around, trying to compare prices and that sort of thing. And he came up to us and he basically said, just tell me what you want your monthly payment to be. Just give me a number. You ever heard that before? And I tried not to be too big of a smart aleck, but... You know, 5 10 even $15 a month would have been nice. But after my wife and I had talked about this and, and, you know, come to a conclusion that this particular number was what we thought we might be able to afford, you know, we just kind of threw that out there thinking, there's, there's no way this isn't going to happen. And so he, he assures us that he's going to do everything that he can to get as close to that number as he can. But no guarantees. It's going to be pretty tough because that, that's a pretty, pretty high demand. And so he, he goes away and he comes back with his supervisor. <laughs> he comes back with the big guns. And then he proceeds to tell us that not only have they matched our request, but they have even lowered the monthly payment from what we requested. You talk about sticking your foot in your mouth. And what do you do now? But what they don't want to tell you, or at least what they don't want to be very upfront about, you have to kind of press them on, is that he didn't want me to really think about the fact that I was going to be paying this car off for 72 months. I mean, I, I, I know this car smells good now. I like it a lot. But in six months from now, I think I'm going to be pretty sick of paying on it. And this is sort of what took place here with the second son. He told his father what he wanted to hear. He tickled his ears, but they were empty words. He said, I will, sir, but he did not go. 
And a literal translation of this in the original language of the New Testament does not include the verb here. It literally uh, reads, I, sir. I, sir. And this is sort of like the, the naval response that, that we're used to hearing. I, captain. Which communicates that uh, something has been heard, understood, and it will be carried out immediately. That's the gravity. That's the force of what's being communicated here. And this is what the second son says. But then he does not do it. And so this is the story Jesus told in response to his authority being challenged. And now let's move to the meaning. Because every time Jesus told a story, every time he told a parable, it wasn't simply for the sake of telling a good story. This is not a gather up a chair and remember a time when story. He always told stories in order to what? To communicate a spiritual truth. And this story is no different. And so in verse 31, he invites his listeners. Remember, these are the the religious leaders. He invites them to answer this question. Which of the two, talking about the two sons, did what his father wanted? The first They answered, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So remember that Jesus is telling this story as well as other stories that we find in throughout Scripture, but especially nestled right here in in Passion Week. He's aiming these at the self-righteous religiosity, hypocrisy of the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders in that day. They answered his question correctly, condemning themselves. They were like the second son who had been entrusted with something, charged to do with something, in their case, charged to to study the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures, to communicate the truth of God, charged to oversee the spiritual practices of the nation of Israel, the people of God, yet they had failed miserably to do it. And the second son, I mean the first son, excuse me, they were like the second son. The first son is compared to the worst of sinners, the prostitutes and tax collectors. Are you kidding me? These are the type of people that anybody with any sort of moral inclination toward God would naturally have looked down upon. Yet here Jesus juxtaposes the repentance of the religious leaders with the repentance of the worst of sinners. He's being direct. He's being confrontational on purpose. He's not holding back because he knows that God is going to use these exact people, these religious leaders, to ultimately take him to the cross, his his mission on earth. These men had no fruit in their lives. They knew the right words. They even practiced a lot of the right things. But it was simply outward religiosity. And the word of God tells us very clearly that 
The kingdom of God is not for people like that. And we read this at the end of this chapter in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 21, which is perhaps the climax of Jesus' verbal confrontation with these religious leaders after another parable that he tells. And this is what it says. It says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. When a people that God has called to be obedient to him and to produce fruit in their lives, evidence of their faith, fail to do so, God has and will continue to call another people who will produce that fruit. This is very similar to what we read back in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, a passage that we're more familiar with, that we often hear uh, when we're uh, talking about evangelism or we hear in an evangelistic setting. And this is what Jesus said in that passage, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. A passage like that, coupled with what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 21 ought to cause all of us to stop and to examine our own hearts and our conditions before God to to determine whether or not we're just practicing outward religion or whether or not we have truly believed in our hearts that Jesus is who he says he is and repented of a life that we rule in turning to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who alone rules. And Jesus, throughout these passages and really throughout all of his ministry placed a heavier emphasis on actions than words. A heavier emphasis on actions than words. And some might want to pause and back up and say, well, wait a minute. We should be emphasizing the grace and the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God as as it's clearly spelled out in Scripture, and it is. And others might say, well, There's got to be some sort of explanation for this. I mean, Jesus often used exaggeration, hyperbole, to to emphasize something in order to really make a point. But we can't miss this morning or any other time that this emphasis on actions, on fruit, on a life of obedience is a thrust throughout the New Testament. This is what we read earlier, or heard read earlier in James chapter 2, that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. And many of us this morning would say, well, well that's no problem. You know, I, I didn't just, you know, check a box saying that I believed in Jesus. I, uh, I, I've been a, a fairly regular churchgoer since. I, I've even helped out with VBS. Maybe taught a Sunday school class. Even served on a committee or two. Or seven. Or maybe even the Supreme Committee of a Southern Baptist Church. I've been on the Committee on Committees. (laughs) Now these are good deeds. These are good things. These are faithful practices. But Scripture very 
clearly teaches that it's not only the action that results from faith in Christ that's important, but also the right motive. The right motive. Listen to these warnings from Jesus from Matthew chapter 6. And these are, these, are, these are told to his followers. These are cautions that Jesus gives to those that, that want to follow him. Potential disciples. He says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Verse 2. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Same chapter, verse 16. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting. And back in Matthew chapter 23, verse 3, Jesus is recorded saying this to the crowds. So you must obey them, talking about the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. He says, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. The reality is that these religious leaders did all sorts of good things all sorts of outward religious things, but they did them for the wrong reason. I want you to hear this, this quote from G. Campbell Morgan, the great British preacher of the 20th century. And I think he's spot on when he summarizes these religious leaders' attitude and motive in this way. He says, The religious leaders had been exercising authority in ethical and religious matters, but never for the sake of the glory of God but for the sake of the maintenance of their own official position. They had been exercising authority in all sorts of religious practices, but never for the sake of the glory of God, simply for the sake of their own official position. And I wonder, is it possible that some of us Church-going, hard-working, serving people might have done some of these good things that we've mentioned already, but been more concerned with our personal image or our public image or status before others rather than simply desiring to serve God and bring glory to God in heaven. Jesus demands belief and repentance. And I'm afraid that, that many in the church today have, have believed something in their head or acknowledged to believe something in their head, but they've never repented in their heart. 
And I don't want to believe that. I don't want to believe that. But, but passages like this aimed at the Jewish religious leader, the religious people that knew the word of God, as well as our own tendency to sin, lead me to think that based off the word of God, that, that if that we would hear something today, we might hear something like this today. This is how this might be communicated to us today, that there are many, many, many in the established church around the world that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But there are also many prostitutes, fornicators, adulterers, cheaters, tax collectors who will enter the kingdom of heaven because they have truly repented and turned of their ways and begun to live for Jesus Christ. Jesus was confronting this hypocrisy among the religious elite in his day. And God hates hypocrisy. He confronts it. He says in his word that hypocrites will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but sinners who have repented will. Look at the final verse in this passage. This is what Jesus is recorded saying. For John, talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, for John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So the reality is that even these arrogant, self-righteous religious leaders could still at any point repent and turn away from their self-righteousness and embrace the truth in Jesus Christ. Turning to God, it wasn't too late. And that's good news for us today, and that's good news for the world today, that it's not too late, that no matter your past, you can turn And you can repent, turning away from yourself and toward God, embracing him, desiring to know him and to live for him. But the reality in this passage is that those religious leaders did not do it. Even when they saw the worst of sinners' lives being transformed by the truth of the gospel, it still wasn't enough. It says very clearly that even then they did not believe And they did not repent. But they understood the message. They answered Jesus correctly. They knew the right words. But the biblical reality is that understanding is not the same as genuine belief and Repentance. Self-righteousness is not the same as God's righteousness. And when we truly understand God's righteousness, we realize that we are completely dependent on him for any righteousness of our own, any right standing before God on our own. And genuine belief in the gospel and repentance leads to submission to Christ. When we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we don't invite him to simply be a part of our life. 
We don't invite him to sit on the throne of our life next to us, kind of like a consultant where every, every once in a while, if we want to know what Jesus thinks about something, we're going to ask him. No, when we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we acknowledge that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord, that he is the only one on the throne. And that naturally leads to a life of transformation, a life of where faith in Christ and trust in Christ begins to pour out in everything that we do or say because we have been changed by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So my question for you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, based on God's word, is has your life been transformed? Has your life been transformed? The reality is if the religious leaders in Jesus' day, who had been trusted with the word of God, who were consistently practicing outward signs of religion and obedience to God, if they could fail to enter the kingdom of God, then you and I, if we're not careful, could fail to enter the kingdom of God. So does your life reveal your faith? Does your life reveal your faith in Christ? Have you had a genuine transformation? I invite you today, I plead with you today, based on God's word, to believe the truth of the gospel in Jesus Christ, to repent, turning away from a life ruled by you, where you call all the shots, and to embrace King Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now acknowledging that your word is true. Lord, that your word cuts to the heart. That your word's not always comfortable, but it's right. And as your people, we desire to hear it, we desire to know it, we desire to live it. Lord, I pray that that you would continue to transform us, that you would continue to to show us what it means to live out our faith in you. Lord, and I pray that you would examine by your spirit all of our hearts this morning, convicting us of sin in our lives and, and revealing what it looks like to genuinely trust in you for salvation. And it's in Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen. We're going to stand and and respond to God's word. And a response for you might look like a number of things. It might simply be a time of prayer between you and, and your Father in heaven. It might be a time of standing and singing praises to God in heaven. It might mean trusting in Christ genuinely for the first time in your life. And if that's you, I invite you to do that. I urge you to do that. I urge all of us to examine ourselves before God in heaven today and every day and to live a life of obedience to him. So during this time, if if you feel God leading you to trust in him for salvation, then you come and let us know. We want to rejoice with you as the church. Maybe you uh, would like somebody to pray with you. Feel free to come as well, and and we'd love to to take you, James or I, and, and to pray with you. Um, and to worship God together. So let's stand and sing together.